If you would uh, take your Bible and open to uh, 2 Corinthians 8 on page 9, 6, 7. It is just so wonderful for us to go back to this second letter from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians. And we're going to finish the letter, hopefully. But for the next three weeks, we're going to look at chapters 8 and 9, which deal with the second big issue in the letter, which is the issue of money and Christian giving. And you're sitting there saying, oh no, I've barely paid off Christmas and the January holidays and we hear a fundraising sermon. You're saying, I knew it. All you Christians are interested in is my money. And I want to say right at the start, God does not want your money. God does not need your money. And it's not yours anyway. But that's... For the... <laughs> we will come to that. <clears throat> the amazing thing is that the Bible doesn't look at money from a cultural perspective or from a monetary standpoint. It talks a lot about money. When it does, its central concern is not really morality or justice or being a good person. The Bible's not so interested in how you make your money or how you spend your money or how much you have. It even, I mean, it deals with greed and selfishness, but that's not at the heart. When the Bible deals with money, it says it's a matter of worship, who God is, of who you and I are and who we're becoming because money is a profoundly spiritual reality. The Bible says that money is not, it's neither strictly in its own sense negative, nor is it strictly, it's not evil or good. But here's the thing most people forget, it's not neutral. It's, a, it's not an object that you control. The Bible says it's a spiritual power, a kind of a God, something that claims our worship. So we give sacred qualities to it. We say we save our money and our money saves us. Money promises grace. Money promises to justify us, to make our lives worthwhile, to give us security, to make us happy, to give us everything that we love and want, to make us feel good about ourselves. And it has a suggestion in it that we can live a very good life apart from God. It's amazing to see what the apostle does in these two chapters. And there's so much in chapters 8 and 9. We're going to spend three weeks looking at these two chapters. This week, we're going to look at the why and how of Christian giving. Next week, we're going to talk about how much to give. And I know you're all looking forward to that one. And the week after that, the key to generosity, and they're a package, three weeks, so you need to come all of them, especially the middle one. <laughs> Here is the backstory of this in Corinthians. So the Apostle Paul is over in Asia Minor, in Macedonia and Greece, and he is making a financial collection for a group of Christians who are back in Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, who are suffering under famine. And a year ago... The Corinthian church, very wealthy church, had said to Paul, count us in. We are the wealthiest church in the New Testament. They didn't actually say that. I'm just... 
They said, these are our brother and sister Christians who are suffering famine and persecution over there in Jerusalem. And we owe them a massive spiritual debt because the gospel came to us. We want to give. And uh, sometime later, if you'd like to look at it, at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 16, Paul begins to explain some principles about how they should give them instructions. He says, every week, you should put apart some of your income depending on how much you receive that week, and you should choose trusted people to take the money and collect it. And he says you should make a plan. And although I'm not preaching on that passage, I just have to say that unless you make a plan, you're not really serious about your giving. You make a plan about uh, your family and your budget and your spending. It's the same with giving. It should be deliberate and planned, not occasional or casual because otherwise you'll miss out on God's grace. So the Corinthians said count us in, but that was a year ago. And wouldn't you know it, over the last year a group of teachers had come in and said, no, 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 you don't give money away except to us. What you do is you, you, God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be prosperous. Giving money away to those poor Jewish Christians is the wrong thing to do because poor people deserve to be poor. That was their argument. And it's amazing to see what the apostle does. I mean, if you were writing to the Corinthians, wealthy church, right? Wealthy church, lots of money, who'd committed to giving, what would you say? What would you do? It's very interesting what Paul does not do. He does not say to them, give 10%, give a tithe. Wouldn't that have been the easiest thing for him to say? He could have pulled you know, probably a hundred Old Testament texts out and said, just give a tenth of what you get. That was the Old Testament marker. And what's fascinating is that in the New Testament, nowhere is the tithe held up as an amount you should give. It's not denied, but it's never appealed to. And I think one of the problems with tithing or giving to 10% is that you can get to a place where you're giving 10% of your income to God and you think of it as a bit of a tax. And you think, okay, I'll give God a tenth, the rest is mine to do with what I wish. So God, uh, Paul doesn't say to them to tithe. Nor does he send them a terrible, moving and manipulative description of the poverty, famine and persecution that the Christians in Jerusalem, you know, those awful full-color brochures that tug at the heartstrings so that they'll loosen the purse strings. Nor does he send them an attractive thermometer with the amount that he expects them. He never mentions an amount. He takes us the opposite direction from calculation and manipulation and he takes us toward grace. The free giving gift of God's grace. And I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but Paul's aim here is not to raise a certain amount of cash for the Christians in Jerusalem. His aim in these chapters, as we'll see, is for the Corinthians to experience the genuine grace of God in their lives so that they will know Jesus Christ better and they'll become more like Jesus Christ. They'll learn this sort of joy, this joy of drawing on the grace of God, whether they're wealthy or whether they're poor, no matter how much they give. I say that because... Grace is the big reality in chapters 8 and 9. 
they be, the chapters begin with grace and they end with grace, and grace is scattered through all throughout the section. Just have a look at the first verse for a moment. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, and the word about is not there. We want you to know the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He doesn't just, he's not announcing it saying, I want you to know about it. He's saying, I want you to know this grace. I want you to experience the same grace that they did. This is not the grace um, which is God's character of, you know, giving. It is it is God's, it's the experience of God giving through you. It's God's grace acting and moving, making concrete uh, decisions through the lives of individuals. And that's why it is the grace of God which begins, continues, deepens and sustains Christian generosity. And we're going to look at the first nine verses briefly. And what the apostle does is he holds up two examples of grace and gives five principles of how we should give. And the obvious example, you know, the big example, the embodiment of grace is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's verse nine. So if you just turn over to verse nine, please. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Beautiful text. Yeah? We use this at Christmas time, and it's right to use it at Christmas time. But originally it was written in a fundraising couple of chapters. No, not fundraising, in a grace couple of chapters. It's about the joy of Jesus who gave himself for us. How rich was Jesus? He was unimaginably rich. You know, for eternity, before the creation of the world, Jesus Christ enjoyed the glory of the Father in intimacy and security and love. When the world was created, everything was created through him and for him. He owns it all. You could not be richer. How poor did he become? Well, he didn't just become a baby for us and enter our world, but in his love, he gave himself willingly to suffer death in our place. He gave his life away, his eternal life away, so that we might receive all the blessings that he had before he came into the world. That's grace. It is the willingness to give up your own rights for the sake of meeting the needs of another person. I know that cuts against the grain. Jesus did it so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. And you may say, what on earth has that got to do with money? Well, grace is grace because it's not bought. You can't pay for it. It's given freely. We couldn't afford it anyway. I mean, there's no cost. There's not, nothing you can pay to win your life back. And yet Christ gladly gave his away. And I think if you think about this for just a moment, it's only grace that begins to unravel the power that money holds over us. What, what money does and what we do with money is, is this. It converts everything that we touch into an object and it empties it of all its meanings except financial meaning. So money approaches a beautiful piece of art 
and it looks at its provenance and history and its beauty and it puts a dollar value on it. And since money is seeking to replace God, and because my desires are so disordered, we've become very adept at calculating everything in terms of money. We talk about a person's net worth. That's a, that's a terrible phrase. You know, houses are all about money now. Uh, we, think we, we think about family and future, about money. But you see, grace works in exactly the opposite direction. It's not naive about money, but grace is all about the power of giving away, giving away, giving away. It's not making the calculation of buying and selling and making objects out of things. See, what grace does is grace, when it comes into a person's life, you suddenly see my life is a gift. It's a gift from God. And then my actions of giving create big meaning. They don't empty meaning like money does. They create bigger meaning of kindness and relationship and freeness and and it opens us to the pain of loving. Jacques Ellul, who's a Christian writer, says this. He says, God does not obey the law of money, but a different law, the law of giving. And I quote, he says, in the new world, the kingdom of God that God is creating, nothing is for sale Everything is given away. The mark of the world of money is the exact opposite of the mark of God's world where everything is free. Where giving is the normal way to act because we're dictated by grace. The love created by money and selling is the exact opposite of the love created by grace and giving. I think, I think that's brilliant and worth thinking about. That's why Jesus Christ is the highest example in the embodiment of grace because in Jesus Christ, it is the only time that God ever submitted himself to the calculus of money where Jesus Christ became an object of trade where he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. The Son of God became merchandise. And we give because he gave. And all the grace of God is found in Jesus Christ. It's a magnificent example. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, that is fantastic. It's beautiful and wonderful, but I can't possibly live up to it. And you can't. And neither can I. So Paul gives a second example. And that is the Macedonians. And this is how grace works in the lives of ordinary people. You with me? Okay, so have a look at verses 2 to 5. Back to chapter 8, verses 2 to 5. Macedonia is north of Greece, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. These people are nowhere near as wealthy as the Corinthians, and they are facing persecution. So what does the grace of God look like in difficult circumstances in the lives of ordinary people? And I want to pull out five principles, which were all there in Jesus' giving, but five principles for Christian giving. I mean, you get a bonus here because I've already done one, haven't I? It should be planned. So there's really six. But I've only got a certain amount of time. So let's look at the five, okay? Number one, if Christian giving is truly based on the grace of God, it'll be joyful. (laughs) Verses one and two. We want you to know the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, which means persecution here, Their abundance of joy 
and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their behalf. Something is going on for the Macedonians that's got nothing to do with their circumstances. Yeah? Uh, we, know, we know from the record that some of them had been imprisoned and beaten and lost their jobs because they had become Christians. Their circumstances were not rosy. But right in the middle of that difficulty, right in the midst of their experience of suffering, they experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ and it had set up a happiness in them, an overwhelming happiness. And I don't know, I don't know any better word for it. It's concealed in the English. But these words, grace and joy and thanksgiving, all come from the same root, kara, which basically means happy, delightful, joyful. But the order is very important. They receive the grace of God first, and then they experience the joy of giving. See? Their generous giving is not a result of their personal moral virtue. They gave because they were already experiencing the joy of God's grace. Their joy did not come from their circumstances, which... It's very important to remember because I hear so many people say, well, you know, God has made me wealthy and therefore he's blessed me. And that's true in a sense. But these guys, they're not, they're not joyful because things are smooth sailing and they've got a lot of money, but because they know God, the real giver, who's given them in Jesus Christ something beyond comparison altogether. And there's a world of difference, isn't there? By giving to display my great generosity and compassion, putting my name on something, and giving out of, out of a sense of the great satisfaction and acceptance that I have in God. One commentator says, this, this giving is not a way of showing God how much we can do for him, but a way of illustrating how much God has done for us. So that's the first principle. That's what grace looks like in action. It means Christians will give joyfully. Second, Christians will give sacrificially. Verse 3. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Now, this is not, um, this is not rosy glasses here. In verse 2, Paul described this situation as very grim, extreme poverty, literally rock bottom poor. But the grace of God had worked in them in such a way, their poverty, Paul says, overflowed in a wealth of generous generosity. My guess is that if you collected all the money the Macedonians had given, it wouldn't add to much. And my guess is that anyone in the Corinthian congregation could probably give a hundred times or a thousand times what all the churches in Macedonia had given. That's irrelevant. The amount is not important. It's the grace of God which creates this sacrificial generosity which exceeds natural explanation. Some of us in this church have seen this. In 2005, we went to a conference somewhere in the States uh, as part of the Anglican Church of North America. And one of the speakers on the platform was Baroness uh, Carolyn Cox. It was the year of Hurricane Katrina. And uh, Cox had just come to the States from visiting a persecuted group of people, persecuted group of Christians in Myanmar, Myanmar, who are called the Karen people. 
she told us some of the most grueling stories of their suffering for Christ. And they had been driven from their traditional homeland up into the mountains. They were living hand to mouth and they had almost no money to speak of. But they heard that Cox was coming to the States and they had heard about Hurricane Katrina. And so they all decided to empty their pockets of all the coins they had. A Burmese kyat. And they insisted on, ta- on giving it to Baroness Cox for the aid of the poor Ameri- these Americans who had suffered from Hurricane Katrina. And of course, she at first declined. But they insisted, we, we want to participate with our brothers and sisters. <laughs> and on the platform, she opened her hand and there was the money. And it added up to something like 70 cents US. I tell you, it might have been worth 70 cents in US, but it was worth a lot more in heaven. That's a gracious treasure right there. Don't get me wrong and don't get the apostle wrong. He's not saying we should become fanatics. And every time we hear a Christian appeal for money, give everything away and put our families into poverty. And the point is that God's grace always leads to sacrifice. It always leads to giving more than we are comfortable with. So first, true giving is joyful. Second, sacrificial. And thirdly, it's voluntary. <laughs> verses 3 to 4. Look at the end of verse 3. They gave their own accord. Verse 4. This is a dream, verse 4. Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. There's no coercion or fundraising from the apostle. He's not begging them to give. They're begging him for the favor of participating in the given, giving like the Karen Christians. It's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, this may the Lord deliver St. John's forever from nagging pastors who scold or shame or threaten. One commentator says, he says, I must confess that none of those approaches have ever stirred me to give more than I plan to give in fact, more than once, I gave less. Echoing Mark Twain, who was so sickened by a long appeal for money in a church, not only did he not give anything to the appeal, he took a note out of the plate as it passed him by. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> did you see, the language here is personal connection language. You know, the favor of taking part in relief, favor is grace, taking part is fellowship, koinonia, uh, relief is ministry, and this is how grace works. If we've received the grace of God, it does give us a desire to give, to take an initiative. And it gives us a desire to take initiative, not to those who've done stuff for us or who will do stuff for us, but to take initiative based on what Christ has already done for us. And don't you think it's possible even after you've been living the Christian life for a while and you know the grace of God, to begin thinking of yourself as a bit of a patron. It's a very thin line between that and becoming patronizing to others. So you're irritated when you hear of a genuine need or you're irritated when you hear Bible teaching on money. We always have to go back to the grace of God in Jesus Christ because only grace can make giving joyful, sacrificial, and voluntary. And fourthly, if grace is working in our lives, it's going to make giving vertical. I, I, I couldn't think up a better word for this. Verse 5, 
And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. The most important thing the uh, Macedonians gave was not giving money. They dedicated themselves to the risen Christ and his work. And that always comes, that always ought to come before we give away. Otherwise, then we are patronizing. You see, in giving money, they gave themselves. That's why every time we meet here, we have an offertory. (laughs) And the offertory is not you offer a little bit of your money to God. It's not even, you know, when the collection comes forward, we offer all our money to God. The idea is meant to be, as Dan prayed today, that we offer ourselves to God first. And then this comes out of that. And no sooner has Paul finished with the Macedonians, he turns to the Corinthians in verse 6 and he says, finish what you started because I want you to experience the same grace. Verse 7, he says, you excel in everything. See that you excel in this act of grace. And then verse 8, he says, I don't say it as a command, and we'll come to this next week, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Here is the fifth principle of Christian giving so far. And if it's based on the grace of God, then it's going to be loving. (laughs) Paul calls the, the collection a test of the Corinthians' love. Now, why has he held up the Macedonians as an example? He's not, trying to, he's not trying to make a competition. He's not trying to create rivalry. You know what it'd be like? Let's compare our per capita giving to the giving of the Oak Ridge congregation. And that'd be awful, wouldn't it? It either leads to pride or to guilt or to shame. No, he says it's a test of love so that you Corinthians will be able to see for yourselves that you love Christ. You know, I can give away all I have. I can give up my body to be burned. But if I do not have love, I gain nothing. It's the grace of God. It's only the grace of God that begins to replace our love for money with our love for God and for others. It's only the giving of Christ on the cross that frees me from any domineering power. It's the ongoing forgiveness and hope that we have in Christ. I thought this morning, you know, maybe we should sing the offertory hymn after the sermon. Not to change the amount, but so that we might practice some of these five things because they're difficult and they're ongoing. But in the end, God does not have a resources problem. He's building a people gripped by grace. He wants to dwell in us. He wants to show his glory through us. And he is gradually delivering us from gods and powers, including money, so that we become more like Jesus to each other and to the world. And it all comes down to grace. And as grace takes root in our lives, our lives become more joyful than they are conventional. You start to live as though your treasure is really in heaven. And if you give in a planned way, pray that it might be joyful and sacrificial and voluntary and vertical and loving. And now let's kneel and pray. And let's approach the throne of grace and ask for God's help together.